forget what was never there Your words are ash and dust All that's left is a song I've sung And a breath I've taken and the one I must If you're born with a love for the road and the writ People have let us, your warning stands clear Pay heed to your heart and not to your wit Don't say in a letter what you can't in my ear Hello and welcome to episode 1164 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. I'm joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, who, like me, has nothing to talk about today. How are you? I'm doing well. My name is Jeff Sullivan. I'm a writer for Fangraphs, and I guess I'm like Ben. I do write about baseball sometimes. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. I'll I'll be back someday when baseball's back. But yeah, we're doing an email show today, so it's okay that neither of us has anything to talk about. Of course, much of the discourse about baseball in the last day or so has been about its economics and about a big article that Jeff Passan wrote about free agency and arbitration and why free agents haven't signed. We're hoping to just talk to Jeff about that in an upcoming episode, so we will save that topic for now and hopefully get into it with him or with us one way or another. We will, but today is for emails and we haven't done one of these in a while so we've got a bunch of emails to get to and you know what's going to happen before we have jeff passing on is that eric hosmer and jd martinez and (laughs) they're all gonna they're all gonna sign giant contracts (laughs) yes that is quite possible all right let's start with an email from gary from baltimore this is uh, a bit about the current market but it won't encroach too much on what we'll be talking about next time he says recently i've seen a lot of articles talking about the recent explosion of rebuilding teams and how that's potentially helping to kill the free agent market i get that as a rebuilding team it doesn't make sense to spend extra money on free agents beyond respectability but shouldn't rebuilding teams instead use the extra space in their budgets to acquire bad contracts from contending teams and get extra assets out of the bargain. The Padres seem to do this with Chase Headley to get Brian Mitchell recently. Why doesn't this happen more often? A team like the White Sox, who can surely afford a payroll higher than $70.8 million, could take on Jacoby Ellsbury and get someone like Clint Frazier out of the bargain. Thanks. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have thoughts? Yeah. Nope. He's right. They should do that <laughs> when teams... like. Okay, so there was a quote that just came out. I think it was today. I saw it tweeted by Stephen J. Nesbitt, but it was a Garrett Cole talking about how excited he is to be on the Astros and how he's thankful to be playing now for a team that is committed to building a winner it's all quite hilarious now but (laughs) a team that is a that invests and is committed to winning etc clearly throwing some shade at the pirates for you know not doing that but what was interesting to me it's not very surprising i think we knew it but this past season was the first time the astros had a higher payroll than the pirates in like six years because, you know, the Astros were cheap and they did not really much invest much in the roster. Now, granted, they had a lot of young talent, didn't require it. But when teams cut down, look, I think the Pirates payroll right now is sitting at something like 70 or 72 million dollars, something that's mm-hmm. laughably low given where they've been before. Clearly, they have room to spend more money. And if you don't want to spend it on free agents for whatever reason, there's really no good excuse not to spend it on bad contracts if they're available. Now, teams don't always have someone like a a Chase Headley or a, I don't know, a Matt Kemp just dangling and terrible and that they want to get rid of. And I know that when you are tearing down, you're rebuilding, you're expecting lesser revenue because your team is bad now and people aren't going to want to watch it or come out to pay to the ballpark and go to see it. But yes, 
teams should do that. I think teams have been generally willing to do that. Maybe not all the time. Owners, of course, have every reason to love the idea of a rebuild, at least when the finances come into play. But yep, teams should do it. Some teams do do it, and some teams should do it more. Yeah, because it's not really like one of the benefits of rebuilding is saving money so that you can spend more later. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe that comes into play a little bit, but generally, I think baseball operations departments, GMs get a budget for a year from ownership. And I don't think if that budget is low for a few years while they're rebuilding, it will necessarily be so much higher down the road. Like, okay, you saved us money for a few years, so now we have wisely invested that money and we are even richer now and now you can spend for a few years i don't i mean it probably should work like that at least to (laughs) to an extent but i don't think it typically does so i think that yeah you should probably just i mean i think that's often why you see teams just sort of spend up to the budget that they're given even if they don't necessarily need to just because the money's there and it's not like if they leave it lying around they can just use it later so i think in that sense yeah there's there's probably something to be said for this strategy why do you think it doesn't happen more often well owners i <laughs> i know that we've been if not talking directly about this there's been a lot of hinting at this i think there's a lot of widespread increasing anger at rich people uh right now in in the country and the baseball conversation does get funny because we're talking about billionaires versus millionaires as opposed to people who are in actual need but in any case i'm sure owners love cutting costs but like there was a what ron fowler i think it was padres mm-hmm. executive had an interview that was linked by mlb trade rumors and actually sourced by somewhere else and he was talking about how so you, the, there's the Headley trade that was mentioned, and Fowler said that the Headley trade was specifically about getting Brian Mitchell. So he he admitted, and, and it's not really much of an admission, but he said, like, yeah, of course we got Chase Headley, former Padre. People like him, and he costs something, I think, $13 million. But he said, yep, yeah, no, Headley is peripheral to his own salary, and it's basically mm-hmm. like we paid that money to get Brian Mitchell. So that is at least one owner who is uh, happy to do it, happy to make that investment. And I would imagine that we'll see more of it. I think, I don't know... If if the whole packaging a bad contract with a prospect idea is even that old, mm-hmm. I, it feels like it's a more recent conversation. Maybe that's just because we've been paying different attention, but probably it's because of how front offices operate and they feel like, well, if this contract is $30 million underwater, we should package it with a prospect who's $30 million over water. Mm-hmm. Is, that a, yeah. is that a word? <laughs> uh, and so it feels like it's happening more and I would expect that it's going to happen more and more because baseball transactions are now impossible to remove from the financial considerations of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I guess it's just a matter of selling your owner on, I mean, you have to explain why you want this money. And if the answer is not because this famous player whom you've heard of is good <laughs> and will make us better this year and will make the playoffs and will make you more money, then I guess maybe owners might be less receptive to that. So you have to convince them that, no, this is going to make the team better in the long term. It's going to make you money in the long term, but you have to kind of expect some delayed gratification there. Next question. All right, we've got a couple related ones. This one's from Denis. He says, how does the added value of winning compare to, for example, one or several marquee additions on a perpetual losing or non-competitive team? In other words, if a team had $30 million to spend and opted to sign a player like Bryce Harper, despite him adding no real chance of winning at all or even being competitive, is there any value to this? Is the three to four year rebuild with a shot at potential competitiveness later worth more than three to four years of increased attention? 
attendance, merchandise sales, fan hype, etc. on a mediocre to awful team caused by one or several major acquisitions. And so essentially he's asking, should a team that's not trying to win right now be interested still in signing a famous player, a top free agent, for reasons other than getting to the playoffs? Marquee value, ancillary value. So it's the Eric Hosmer conversation, deciding between the Royals and and the Padres, two teams who are presently bad and who hope to stop being bad uh, sometime in the near term future. So I think when it comes to talking about this in reality, the one of the biggest complications is that the the really good and expensive free agents will generally have many teams who are interested in paying them a lot of money, and some of those teams will be good now. Teams mm-hmm. or players want to play for good teams, which is why this doesn't happen very often. So you kind of need you need cases where uh what the the precedent is not long, but the one that comes to mind is like Jason Worth. The Nationals gave Jason Worth a big contract right. before they were good. And that was like supposedly to change the perception of the team to a certain extent, like to convince other players, okay, this is a place where people want to play or change the the narrative sort of uh, about a team that had been bad for a while. Yeah. I uh, When I wrote about Hosmer, gosh, when was it? This internet link tells me December 19th. So let's go with that. So uh, I wrote about Hosmer and fitting him in San Diego because that was the idea. And I did some uh, some research. So why don't I just pull from this paragraph? This will be helpful. You expect, this is now me quoting myself, so I guess forget the quotation marks. This is just me. You expect big money free agents to sign with good teams. Those are the teams that can make the best use of them. Yet Hosmer might not have that choice to make. It's possible. I'm going to stop myself right here because we probably shouldn't be talking about Eric Hosmer as a premium free agent anyway. He's I don't think he doesn't belong in the same conversation as Bryce Harper. But look, we're just mm-hmm. dealing with what we have here. So, it's possible he'll end up choosing between a rebuilding situation in Kansas City and a rebuilding situation in San Diego. The Padres could be poised to offer more money, and this wouldn't be an unprecedented outcome. Barry Zito signed with a Giants team coming off a 76-win season. Zach Greinke signed with the Diamondbacks, who are coming off 79 wins. Robinson Cano signed with a Mariners team coming off a 71-win season. Jason Wirth signed with the Nationals when they had just won 69 games. And of course, Alex Rodriguez signed with the Rangers team coming off a 71-win season. Those contracts aren't all success stories, not from the team perspective, but these things have happened before. Hosmer could be San Diego's Wirth installed in advance of the competitive turn. So, these things have happened. Alex Rodriguez, a great player, didn't really work out in, uh, in Texas. Robinson Cano has... Uh, I guess the Mariners have been better since he signed, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know how things look. <laughs> so I think from the player's perspective, if you don't care that much about winning or if the if the rebuilding team offers you more money, then sure, you can take it. But it's hard for me to see how in any reasonable sense it would make the most sense for the rebuilding team to, to make a move like this. But, mm-hmm. you know. With a case like the Hosmer situation right now, where there's just such a limited market that it does make sense for bad teams to get involved, because otherwise, what are you going to do with your money? Mm -hmm. But this feels like a fairly unique circumstance. Right, yeah. And I think most of the studies that have been done on this have shown that the marquee value of players, like they're just a very few players who really do put butts in the seats or whatever people say about signing a player, that just doesn't happen usually. Obviously, there are certain cases where it does some sensational starting pitcher who will attract more fans on the days that he starts, that sort of thing. But for the most part, I mean, you have to be one of the very, very elite few or fascinating stories to do that sort of thing to make a meaningful difference in attendance, particularly if it's a team that's not 
winning to begin with. And so uh, I, I, I just don't think that it would make a lot of economic sense to a losing team for the most part. It's probably still going to benefit the winning team that will get that extra attendance boost from this great player because maybe they'll make the playoffs with this player or they'll get deeper into the playoffs that sort of thing so generally it just doesn't make the most sense maybe yeah. there are specific cases where it could i think ultimately also it's the success that brings eyes to a team and when you have a team that's good people will figure out players to like and yeah. when you have a team that's bad people will stay away and so they'll pay less attention like the mm-hmm. i know jean carlos tan was popular in miami but he would have been a lot more popular on a team that wasn't terrible and if mm-hmm. the marlins were good and if they didn't have jean carlos tan the fans would have fallen in love with christian yelich or d gordon people will find someone probably i would feel like maybe it's more commonly a, a homegrown player but i don't know that's a separate conversation and we've also talked mm-hmm. about what qualifies as homegrown before i'll stop you can move <laughs> on to the next question okay Jeff in San Francisco says, I was wondering how this offseason would have been different if baseball had adopted an amnesty clause in the current CBA. The concept of an amnesty clause originated in the NBA, a sport with a salary cap and a luxury tax for teams that go over it. In short, a team can cut a player and have his entire salary not count toward the salary cap for all the remaining years of his contract. The player would still get all the money owed on that contract. However, this type of accounting exercise meant for teams to get salary cap space to either sign free agents or make trades of course there are also restrictions each team can only use the amnesty clause once during the life of the cba it can only be applied to the contracts signed before the current cba the player can't sign back with his old team so how would the offseason be different if mlb had such an amnesty clause would getting further under the luxury tax threshold facilitate more signings and trades which players would be the ones most likely to be amnestied under such a scenario This is uh, one of those questions that we could probably answer more intelligently if we knew more about other sports (laughs) that have already done this. But so say baseball's worst contracts, current worst contracts that were signed before the current CPA could just Mm -hmm. be wiped away, but you could only do it once during the life of that CBA. So, you know, once every four years or so. Yep. Uh, goodbye, Albert Pujols. I hope you had fun <laughs> with your baseball career. He's gone, but the Angels yes. are not up against the the luxury tax threshold. So, of course, if the Angels didn't have Pujols on the team, they would be able to spend a little more. So that would help. I don't think that the Dodgers... I mean, I guess technically they have Matt Kemp now or something. Mm-hmm. I guess they, but the Dodgers <laughs> don't really, they're, they've been trying to save money, but they don't really have a, a contract that they would be looking to dump, or I guess they already sort of did do their dumps. <laughs> Look, it's been a while. I forgot what happened. But anyway, <laughs> the question, I guess, is the Jacoby Ellsbury contract bad enough for the Yankees to cut him out, right? Because he's still a somewhat decent player. I know right. they're trying to save money, though, and this would mm-hmm. be a good opportunity for them. So I don't know if they would use it on Ellsbury, but that would be a question because it's really only the Dodgers and Yankees who are most eagerly trying to save money. Like that maybe the Tigers would cut one of their terrible old players, but I mean, Mm -hmm. they also suck. So what does it really matter? (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, Ellsbury is still useful to some teams, not to the Yankees particularly. Mm -hmm. He just has no spot there really, but they have obviously been talking about packaging him with someone to get out from part of that contract so he still has value to some teams so maybe he's not the best candidate but you know we can think of the obvious ones that teams would have been happy to use this on I mean I guess it would increase spending if 
an owner knows that there's always this sort of safety net where they can get out from under a, a disastrous contract once every four years or so. I mean, how often do teams sign really, really big and terrible contracts? Not not all that often. So if you could do this once a, a life of a CBA, that would be pretty sweet. So <laughs> I would think that would help boost the market if teams knew that they had a, an escape clause, essentially. Now, of course, you get out from under the contract for payroll or for luxury tax concerns, but you still have to pay the money, is my understanding. So yeah. even like if the ain't we'll, we'll do the Yankees in Ellsbury anyway. If the Yankees cut Ellsbury, like the Yankees have the money, they could support like a $500 million payroll if they wanted to. But <laughs> If you, if the Yankees were any other team in these circumstances, you can cut Ellsbury, and that saves you room under the luxury tax. But you still have to pay that money, and so mm-hmm. any any extra money that the Yankees then use to sign a free agent is essentially similar to signing a slightly smaller deal and then paying a luxury tax penalty on top of it. So you're still paying more money. Yeah. So it would be a a modest. It wouldn't be a one to one gain. I don't think is the point. No. Yeah, as as Jeff has written about, and maybe we'll talk to him next time, not Jeff in San Francisco, but Jeff Passan, about the the fact that maybe the luxury tax concerns are kind of overblown because, I mean, really, it's not that much extra money if you think about it. It's like a very increased taxation, but only on an amount over a very high number. So it's it's just not that much in raw dollars. So yeah, I mean, to the extent that teams are trying to stay under that limit, obviously this would make them worry a little less about that. But yeah, it, it probably wouldn't dramatically change things. The luxury tax conversation is annoying, but I think... Like Jeff Baston has talked about how getting under the luxury tax is not that big a deal. And then uh, mm-hmm. this morning, Buster Olney tweeted about how the Dodgers could save like nine figures in the future <laughs> if they get under the luxury tax. And I think that teams and owners benefit from the system being just complicated enough that people won't <laughs> willingly run through the numbers because it's there's so many details and it puts me off. But I think yeah. I, I think the reality is that the teams do have a vested interest in in selling this luxury tax threshold. It's like, yeah, we have to get under that because there's huge financial reasons. And it's really, they're not, I don't think they're that huge. I know they do mm-hmm. roll over because the benefits are more than just one yeah, year. So but compounding, but yeah. Nevertheless, I mean, you're talking about, look, I just to pull a number off the top of my head, maybe you're saving... $30 million over the next three or four years if you dip back under the tax for a one-year blip. And that's not nothing. But if when you're talking about a team like the Yankees or the Dodgers, come, come on, just, mm-hmm. just pay the money. <laughs> right. All right. Let's transition away from economics for a moment here. Matt says, I was born in 1988 and have lived in Pittsburgh my entire life. While the Pirates were good until 1992, I obviously have no memories of them from when I was four years old. The next 20 years of my life were filled with memories of horrific, embarrassing baseball until Andrew McCutcheon saved the franchise and led my favorite team to the 2013 NL wildcard game and the best sports atmosphere I've ever experienced. My question to you, is it permissible to switch allegiance to the San Francisco Giants for the upcoming 2018 season? and return to my inexplicable lifelong commitment to the Pirates in 2019? Or is this cheating? So can he essentially go with McCutcheon in this trade to the Giants for the year that he is still under contract, root for McCutcheon and the Giants, abandon the Pirates, and then go back to the Pirates after that? Okay, so I think that you and I are going to have similar answers to this. So what I would say, let's let's alternate one word at a time. <laughs> I'll go first, okay? <laughs> Okay, Okay. we'll try it. I think. 
<laughs> that Matt shouldn't <laughs> switch. Oh, not where I was going. Not oh, where okay. I was going. We're, okay. We've deviated. Okay, okay, so uh so you can I guess we already know what your point is. I'm uh, not actually sure that I believe that. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I was trying when to improv. I was going I was, along uh, with where I thought you might be going. Maybe we both thought we were going in different directions, but yeah. you're uh, taking a, a laissez faire <laughs> attitude to this, just saying he can do what he wants. Yeah. Don't let anybody don't just general rule. Don't let anyone tell you how you should consume your entertainment provided nobody is hurt by mm-hmm. how you choose to consume said entertainment i agree i think that if he can do this and not feel bad about it in any way then mm-hmm. he should i mean fandom is silly and irrational to begin with so if he can convince himself that he should be rooting for the giants this year the way that he thought he should be rooting for the pirates last year and then if he can go back to pirates mindset in 2019 then good for him and he should do it i think most people probably couldn't pull this off very (laughs) convincingly i i don't think i could have when i was a fan and i don't know if that's just the societal pressure that you have to be rooting for the same team through thick and thin i mean there is something to be said for sticking with a team when it's bad because you can enjoy it when it's good again i mean if you just abandon the team during the tough times then you know that's that's part of fandom now it's been a huge part of matt's fandom which is not (laughs) fair to matt really he didn't choose to be born in pittsburgh and to i guess he chose to become a pirates fan but probably he was influenced by family and friends so in that sense he shouldn't be forced to suffer but the suffering is valuable i mean the the eventual success is better if you stick around for the suffering i think so i would say that matt should follow his heart here and if he can really talk himself into being a giants fan for this year and then go back to being a pirates fan and not feel as if he had been fickle great but i i worry that maybe he (laughs) won't be able to pull it off that maybe he will end up feeling bad about this decision in retrospect yeah i i agree with you i think that the ultimately your your gut will tell you how you actually feel and you can you can say whatever you want about how you're going to approach the season but if you can't convince yourself that you actually like the giants that much and that you only care about andrew mccutcheon then it's going to be a very different experience so what i i'm I'm not going to say that this is what i suggest but what i figure is probably going to happen is that our friend here is going to still remain a pirates fan also i think it's going to be a better season for the pirates than people are giving them credit for but that's a different conversation and i think that you're just going to have a little bandwagon team on the side which is totally reasonable i have teams that i bandwagon every year it's not always quite as fervent as it used to be but i remember in like 2008 which as far as i'm concerned was the worst mariners season that's ever been played uh, that year i got extremely into the rays uh, they had just become the rays and it was their first good year and then they made it to the world series and i bandwagon the hell out of that team and it yeah. felt great because the mariners were unwatchable but i still recognized that was a bandwagoning and i was still rooting for jeff clement and vladimir ballantine and <laughs> all that garbage <laughs> yeah right yeah and you can just root for mccutcheon to have a good season personally and for him to experience success. I I just, you know, I don't think it can be as enjoyable, as rewarding if you're just following a a team that you've never followed before or never rooted for before just because of one player you like. You know, I don't think that the emotions can be there. Like, you're not going to feel... If the Giants win 
this year, Matt's not going to feel for them what he felt for the Pirates in 2013 or or any of the years that the Pirates have lost in the wildcard game. But I think that he should do whatever makes him happy. And if he can <laughs> do this in a way that makes him happy, then I will not be throwing stones at him for uh, forsaking his team. Now, what if the Giants are bad again? Mm-hmm. And the Pirates surprise, and around trade deadline time, they find they need a corner outfielder. <laughs> if That's, if uh, the circumstances possible. were aligned, because I think, I mean, look, if if Tyler Glasnow, for example, figures out strikes, boom, there's your, there's your ace. And then that makes a huge difference. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to go through all the things that can make the Pirates good. We'll probably do a team preview episode that talks about that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, teams overachieve. And I wonder, I really wonder what the chances would be if the circumstances were aligned, would the Pirates do that and then almost force themselves to have to say goodbye to Andrew McCutcheon again (laughs) at the end of the year? I wonder how that conversation would go. Huh. Yeah, it's uh, an intriguing, if unlikely, storyline for the 2018 season. (laughs) All right. While you were away, I answered some emails from Michael Bauman, and we talked about baseball in wintertime and how it would be different. We both agreed that it would be bad. But this question (laughs) is a a follow-up to that sort of Justin says, to build on the question about wintertime baseball, I'd like to consider the question of pitchers' base running jackets. At what temperature does a pitcher wearing a cozy jacket have an advantage over his non-jacketed but more offensively talented teammates. If the next position player due up in the next inning were to Waxahachie swap in as pitcher for the third out every inning for the purpose of gaining jacket rights during their next at-bat, how cold would it need to be for this to be a competitive advantage? So, first of all, what I'd say is, can anyone wear a jacket? What are the jacket rules? Uh, Do pitchers just, do they have a special dispensation for jackets, or are they just the only ones who want to wear jackets? I'm going to the rules. They want to All right. keep their arms warm. I, Control I, F, jacket. <laughs> Does jacket show up in the official baseball rules 2017? No. There is no jacket in the rules, but that's not the CBA. Let's see. Yeah. Wind, break, no. no. Do I have a copy of the CBA? Do you have a copy of the CBA? Well, not handy. It's out there, right? But... All right. I want to find this thing. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't actually know. I, I would assume that pitchers just have more incentive to keep themselves warm because they have to use their arms in a unique ah. way. So uh, I, I, the reason I'm asking, obviously, is that if it were cold enough, I mean, we never see position players wear. Do we ever see them wear jackets on the bases in cold weather? Obviously, we see them wear, you know, face masks and things. But do we ever see them wear a jacket? I feel like this is something we should know. Yeah, I feel like I've seen... Oh, gosh. I feel like... Okay, what can... Pitcher, jacket, running. <laughs> Let's see what shows up here on on Google. A, ah, hold on. A pitcher... Okay. World Series. There's a Wall Street Journal article about this. Okay. okay. A pitcher may... Uh, gosh. Okay, where is it? I'm just going to... Okay, I'm just going to read this. Okay, this okay. is Matthew Futterman. This is okay. from October 28th, 2010. Headline, you'd be cooler without the jacket. Mm. subhead baseball lets pitchers button up on base but some balk at the idea quote Uh you're an athlete 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Texas Rangers pitcher Colby Lewis says he's one of those guys who sweats a lot, so he is not a devotee. Side note, obviously Colby Lewis is kind of one of those guys <laughs> who sweats a lot. Dave Rigetti, the pitching coach for the San Francisco Giants, says you're an idiot if you don't, while former pitcher Ron Darling says you're basically a wuss if you do. Huh. Quote, if you're a pitcher, you're supposed to be an athlete, so you ought to act like one, Mr. Darling, now a TV <laughs> analyst, said recently. If Josh Hamilton can run the bases without a jacket, you should be able to do it, too. The World Series is back. This is an outstanding article. The World <laughs> Series is back in this famously blowy city by the bay. and th- Famously blowy city by the bay. And Thursday night's <laughs> forecast is for wind, drizzle, and temperatures in the mid-50s. Because this is a National League ballpark where pitchers from both teams take their turns in the batter's box, the scene is set for one of the most idiosyncratic, some would say dorky, traditions in sports pitchers wearing jackets on the field we've already seen some of this during game two of the national league championship series philadelphia phillies starter roy oswalt could be seen acting plenty macho in the seventh inning by ignoring the third base coach's hold sign and sprinting toward the plate all while wearing a red Phillies jacket snapped up to the neck. But if many of the younger pitchers in this series and in this game in general are to be believed there's a rebellion underway I don't think it works, said Giants Uh. starter Jonathan Sanchez. Incidentally, not in baseball anymore. Not a coincidence when asked (laughs) for his take. (laughs) This article is going to answer our question here eventually, (laughs) I I do believe. (laughs) When asked for his take on jackets, you're hot out there. You're running around. You stay warm. It's not for me. Baseball players and coaches, like any professional athletes, prefer to convey an image of toughness. Batters, okay, where's just the rule? I think, tell me where the rule is. I, I just Googled this and I got an excerpt from this article that I think answers the question. <laughs> <laughs> so it says, Pat Courtney, a spokesman for Major League Baseball, said it goes back more than 50 years and is in the official umpire's manual. Mm. A pitcher may wear a jacket while a base runner. A pitcher may not wear a jacket while batting. The manual states so I, I guess it does specify the pitchers do this I wonder whether we would see position players do this if it were cold enough whether it would overcome this silly macho no jacket wearing nonsense but that's why I wanted to ask because if position players could wear jackets if it got cold enough then obviously this advantage would be erased but not the case only pitchers can wear jackets it seems so at what temperature does a pitcher wearing a cozy jacket have an advantage over his non-jacketed but more talented <laughs> teammates? I guess the next question I would ask is whether there are any limitations on the jacket wearing. Like, can you only wear jackets of a certain size or warmness? We, we generally only see pitchers wear light jackets. But, I mean, if it gets cold enough, because it has to get cold enough, I don't think there's any like windbreaker weather where I would take a pitcher over a a hitter. It's just not going to affect the hitter Uh enough. So we have to be getting down to like hypothermia inducing temperatures here, I think, for this to become relevant. And if a pitcher can only wear a windbreaker, I don't know. But if a pitcher can wear like a Arctic rated cold weather gear, then that might make a real difference because they would be alive and the batters would be dead i think i've forgotten the original questions <laughs> now so the pitchers what the idea is that the pitchers are wearing the, the jackets when they're running the bases but then they also hit and right. so what was what was the question <laughs> but in a simpler way how cold would it need to be for this to be a competitive advantage so if the next basically i, I guess I mean, the problem here is that you can't wear the jacket while you're batting, Mm -hmm. regardless. It's only when you're on the bases. But that's that's still relevant, I guess, because uh, if it gets cold enough, base runners would die, 
uh, without <laughs> jackets, which would make it difficult to score runs. So, uh, I mean, in that sense, I guess you'd rather have the pitcher if they can wear a warm enough jacket. This question is silly. So the idea is that the pitchers are warm on the base pads and then so that they have like lingering warmth when they go to the plate, even though they're playing at like absolute zero. I guess so. I mean, there is a period, obviously, during which you lose body heat. So it could be a Mm -hmm. a killing temperature, but you would not be dead yet. So (laughs) I guess uh, at whatever that temperature is, you would rather have the pitcher who has been wearing a jacket over the position player who has not and is now expired or unconscious. I mean, at the end of the day, no matter what, maybe the pitchers die a little slower, but everyone's dead in this, in these circumstances. The, the field is littered with the dead. It's yes. a game played before corpses. It's a very grim scene. It's yes. interesting. You got the, the Pat Courtney quote. There's a little more. Uh, it does continue. No other player is permitted to wear a jacket while a base runner, a batter, a defensive player, or a coach on the baselines. If huh. worn, the jacket must be buttoned. <laughs> So there's a there's a lot of jacket rules. I was looking. So there's nothing in the the CBA, nothing in the official baseball rules, as mentioned. It is in the umpire's manual. But yeah. why can't a coach wear a jacket? <laughs> That's what if it's cruel. cold? I, I know. <laughs> Just really. I mean, I guess is the concern that like someone could jump out of the stands and masquerade as a coach. If you can't see the jersey, just anyone could be a coach. I, um, I don't know. I can't imagine that being a legitimate. I feel concern. like there's. I feel like there are things in place that would prevent that from happening. Yes, namely, I the agree. coach. Right. <laughs> I mean, if anything, coaches should be more encouraged to wear jackets so that they don't resemble the players. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Let All them right. wear jackets. I think if it's cold enough to kill then you would rather have the pitcher wearing the jacket than the position player not. And also we agree that coaches should be able to wear jackets and they should advocate that for that in the next CBA. I don't know if the coaches are part of a union, but, but they should be. Question for you, related question for you. At what temperature would you rather have Bartolo Colon pitching than Chris Sale? (laughs) <laughs> we're assuming that cologne has enough insulation to keep him functional here whereas that is precisely uh, the assumption sale is just feeling the wind whipping through his frame <laughs> um yeah i mean i guess uh i don't know is it i guess that's true right i guess a, a very skinny person would be more susceptible to the cold perhaps yeah. i mean they still have skin right they are both exposed (laughs) to the elements in the same way but i guess your your core heat perhaps would be preserved Mm -hmm. better so uh huh we should probably look up like their their weather splits or something but i don't know i'll say uh i'll say 30 i want to say 10 okay 10 degrees fahrenheit i think Uh that chrysale is very good Uh unlikely to die that's true if we're talking um, about current cologne in sale there's yeah. a, a quite a talent cap there so i wonder i wonder if you uh went through the baseball history if colder weather teams have averaged heavier players or if maybe they should <laughs> yeah competitive advantage listen All up, right. Minnesota. <laughs> let us answer another question let's see can i take a slightly less silly question just to break things up a bit is there one Hmm. All right. Let's do. No, that's silly. This is this is very silly. Also silly. All right. Uh, how about this one? This is from Stephen, who says a recent discussion about the future of the catcher position, if and when a human is no longer calling balls and strikes, got me thinking. 
I can see how the benefits of framing ability will fall away and it will become a bat first position with robot umps. I'm curious as to how far that will reach. Will college install these systems? Will high schools install these systems? At levels with human called strike zones, catchers will still be rewarded for framing abilities. I'm thinking about the Matthew effect. The kids who get the best training early get an edge that accumulates over time. Even in Little League, the first kid to be willing to sit back there, let alone show any talent for catching, is going to get a ton of reps. Will we get a glut of minor league players who were glove-first catchers and now can't hit enough to keep up? So that's kind of interesting. I I think we both think probably that robot umps are inevitable. I mean, maybe not soon, but someday. So you will get some sort of transition period where you'll have robot umps at the major league level, maybe even at the minor league level, but you won't have them in amateur ball. And so kids' early baseball experiences are not going to be with that. It's going to matter getting extra strikes. And so you'll get a bunch of catchers maybe who will suddenly have whiplash because they'll be going from a skill being valuable to a skill not being valuable. Yeah, that is interesting. You're still going to have, it's still going to be important to stay in good defensive position and all that stuff because you need to be able to transition to making throws or to not let pitches mm-hmm. get by you. But yeah, it will be interesting to see if we get a, a bunch of Ryan Domitz down the line who just mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, think of think of the way that pitches will be caught when we're like three year, five years into an automated strike zone there's mm-hmm. i wonder even when framing ceases to have any benefit at all and even when it's like a the first pitch to a batter and there's no one on base so there's i mean in those cases the catcher is only even there because a catcher has to be in the box per the rules but he doesn't mm-hmm. have to do anything if the strike zone is automatic except maybe keep the ball off the ground if he is in the interest of sustainability and not wasting baseballs mm-hmm. but i wonder if catchers will still try to kind of pseudo frame just for the sake of not looking like complete idiots <laughs> uh-huh. you know because you don't want to there's always going to be style points and we see outfielders catch balls in non-fundamental ways all the time because they mm-hmm. want to look good and which is fine because usually they don't drop the baseball but yeah. it is uh, it's really hard for me to visualize exactly how well catchers are going to continue to catch when it ceases to really matter yeah i definitely think you'll see some domits i, I guess the question is just like will there be the jeff mathis of college who is like about to be drafted <laughs> and then suddenly robot umps are installed and <laughs> he's like damn it <laughs> <laughs> they, it actually mattered how you could frame for hundreds of years, and here I am, the great framer. No one wants me anymore because I can't hit or something. So inevitably, you'll you'll get some guys who are just out of luck under this new system. I wonder whether it will just kind of trickle down. Like if framing is not emphasized at the major league level, it might just not be at any level. Like even though it might still help you in little league or high school or college, I wonder whether just because the majors are the model. And those are the players everyone looks up to. If teams clearly aren't prioritizing that and it's clear that you don't need to be good at that to make the majors someday, then maybe it just won't even be a part of people's training. So there just won't be any good framers at any level unless they're just instinctively great. So that could happen too. But there will be a a strange, jarring transition period inevitably if it does happen well i guess if it does happen then the good young framers will get the comeuppance that bad young framers have gotten in the last few years so (laughs) you know what goes around comes around yeah they've had it good for a while (laughs) all right let's take one more here this is from sean 
Last year, Phil Gosselin led all position players in games played with fewer than 10 hits. He played 40 games with a robust line of 146, 180, 188. Now let's say you make a deal with the devil or a benevolent third party or God where he, she, it gives you the opportunity to get 10 hits over the course of an entire major league season and you can decide how you spend them. How do you spend them in a way that maximizes your time in the majors? Certainly you can't wait too long to use a couple of them because then it would be back to AAA with you. But if you spend them all early in the season, you might be out of luck by the time important September baseball comes comes around what say you i'd pitch <laughs> yeah that's right you could easily go a whole season probably be better than the typical pitcher if you <laughs> if you can get 10 hits in a season so yeah but if you're not a pitcher what i mean i guess the best thing to do i mean if we're only talking about maximizing your time in the majors then we don't really care if you're still around in in september we're not talking about like the best time to be in the majors so i think probably the best thing to do like I think you would probably last longer if you come out of the gate hot you have like a sensational week or two in April then you might get a longer leash than if you say you know just kind of strung together like a hit or two for five weeks or ten weeks in a row I, I could be wrong about that but like you know if you're hitting 500 or something after two weeks in the season and everyone's talking about you then maybe you can just go over for weeks and weeks and teams will still keep giving you a chance yeah especially if you could come up with a few clutch early hits right. i guess but there's really there's really no good way to use 10 hits if that's no. all you got it's not enough hits yeah because you have to you of course would want those 10 hits to matter come down the stretch be in the playoffs but if you only get 10 hits you're sure as hell not going to get the <laughs> opportunity to deliver those hits in the first place unless you're what travis ishikawa but mm -hmm. this question is maybe curious who has played the most ever games with fewer than 10 hits <laughs> so uh yeah play index that's just gonna we're just gonna try to find out here any non pitcher and yeah. uh, we're gonna we're gonna see what we find out here any guesses yeah i mean well no I, I guess like a defensive replacement probably like someone who is great at defense or pinch running you know it, it would be someone like that who gets into a lot of games for non-hitting related reasons and just manage to get enough hits to stick around but I, I you know it'd probably be someone obscure i'm guessing well i'm having trouble excluding pitchers from this mm. which is irritating <laughs> So yeah. I could always go to the Fangraphs leaderboards, which is something that my boss would probably compel me to do. <laughs> uh, so what I'm going to do is uh, is do that while okay. Ben very helpfully buys time for another 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I mean, I guess we could just get to the stat blast. We have a few stat blasts, I guess, to get to. So let us make this the official time for the stat blast segment. Great. Yeah. You know what? Because forget this. I'm not going to look this up. I don't care anymore. So we're just we're just going <laughs> to stat blast it. They'll take a data set certify something like ERA minus or OBS plus And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length and analyze it for us in amazing ways Here's today's Starblast I have something separate, and you, uh, you, I'm very proud of what I think that you did for the stat <laughs> yeah. list. 
Yeah, a rare Ben Lindbergh stat blast I have today. Yeah, if you want to keep looking up the fewer than six <laughs> thing while I talk, then please feel free. My, my curiosity is semi-peaked now. But this is a question, the listener request for a stat blast. This came to us from Chris, who says, Over the holidays, I was enjoying some drinks and food with my wife's brother and his wife. We were discussing popular names and what names for kids seem popular now. To make a long story short, we discussed the most successful names. For our example, money or power was used as a definition of success. This leads me to think about baseball and the most successful baseball names. I assume the name Mike will be one of the top names in war accumulated throughout a career. Mike Schmidt, Mike Messina, Mike Piazza, Mike Trout, all worth a couple hundred war. What is the most successful baseball name? So this is uh, an actual answerable question, which I also used Fangraphs for. So what I did here was I just exported every career. So I took all non-pitchers and I took their offensive career lines, just going back to the very beginning of professional baseball, Major League Baseball. Then I did the same for pitchers. I just exported all the pitchers. I removed the duplicates. So I I didn't want to duplicate position players pitching, essentially. So I removed the dupes there. So then I just added them all together. So I have war for each of these guys. I have either plate appearances or total batters faced for each of these guys. And then I have their names. And uh, in Excel, I just separated out the names. So I took their first names only and just made a little pivot table. And I now have for every name in Major League Baseball, I have a sum of war produced, a sum of plate appearances or total batters faced. I also have the number of each name that has been in the majors. So I am able to look up the rate of war per name as well. So uh, I, I guess I will, there's no suspense here because Chris's guess is correct. The most successful name in baseball history is in fact Mike with a sum of 1,862.9 war. There have been many Mikes. There have been 439 Mikes in Major League Baseball, and uh, those Mikes have produced 4.2 war per Mike. This is not the most common name in baseball history. Do you want to guess what the most common name in baseball history is? It's it's just a, a common name in history as well. John? John's number two. Oh. Mike is number three. Uh, Chief. <laughs> Chief, how many chiefs have there been? Chiefs, there have been 11 chiefs, 11 mostly chiefs? from a, a bygone era of baseball. What I should specify here, of course, is that I'm I'm separating names. So, you know, Michael is separate from Mike, I assume. Let me confirm that that's the case or maybe, yeah. So there are 40 Michaels here. Uh, and so I'm not lumping those in with Mike. I'm making no mm-hmm. attempt to, to combine variants of names. But I, I will just tell you, Bill is actually mm. by far the most common baseball name. There have been 546 Bills in Major League Baseball. And John, the second most common, 474. That's a very big gap. Because from number two to number three, it's 474 to 439. So Bill, by far the most common baseball name, maybe name in general, I don't know. But the most successful by accumulated career war names in baseball history, Mike, Joe, Bill, Jim, Bob, George, John, Jack, Johnny. So, you know, John, Jack, Johnny, those are uh, 789 
and then Frank. No huge surprises here, obviously. Mike is uh, actually the most playing time, most played appearances and or total batters faced is by Mike, even though Mike is the third most common baseball name altogether. Now, I looked at war per name. So if you if you just take war and then divide it by the number of people who have had that name, the most common or the most productive baseball name on a per player basis is Hannes, which is uh, <laughs> perhaps for obvious reasons. There has been one Hannes in Major League Baseball history. He was pretty good at baseball. So uh, Hannes right now. If you name your kid Hannes, all past Hannes's in Major League Baseball have averaged 138.1 war. <laughs> pretty good, pretty good bet. And then you've got Triss, Gaylord, Christie, Chipper, Fergie, Arky, Pud, Andrew with a U, <laughs> Harmon, etc. Those are all for obvious reasons. But if we raise the uh, the minimum for number of names to have had that name just so we don't get these singular ones so if we specify that you have to have had at least 10 players with this name the most successful name in baseball history on a rate basis is babe what do you know (laughs) (laughs) 17.8 war per babe Uh, and uh, second barry (laughs) 15.6 war per barry then you got willie jimmy richie kurt Charlie, Frankie, Chief. <laughs> Chief is actually the uh, what ninth most successful baseball name per Chief. And then uh, Ty, Mickey, Roger, Reggie. So no enormous surprises here, really. If you are wondering which of our names has been more common or more successful, I can answer that question too. And the answer is Jeff is just a better baseball name in uh, in every respect, essentially. <laughs> there have been... Oh, now we've got Jeffrey's showing up here. Get out of here, Jeffrey. I'm interested in you. Jeff, there have been 151 Jeffs in Major League Baseball history. That makes it the 20th, 20th most common name in Major League Baseball history is Jeff. Jeff's have produced 567.1 war and 3.8 war per Jeff, whereas Ben is only the 65th most common name in baseball history. There have been 67 Bens. They've produced 224 war. That's 3.3 war per Ben Pales in comparison to the 3.8 war per Jeff. If you have any questions about names and baseball history, I can answer them. I will also put this online. I suppose I'll, I'll just throw this in a Google Doc if you're interested in where your name ranks in baseball history. I will link to this in the show page and the Facebook group if if you want to explore. So that is a perhaps more thorough than anyone wanted answer to this question from Chris. All those Jeffs and only one Jeff. Jeff Decker <laughs> is the only Jeff in the history of Major League yeah. Baseball that that shows up. Okay, so the answer, the answer to the uh, the other question, the person who has played the most games in a season. While ending up with fewer than 10 hits, he is, uh, as you might expect, a player who, when I look him up on Baseball Reference, does not have a pronunciation guide, but does have a very unfamiliar last name. So, sorry, Ross, uh, for this. But the answer, uh, most games, fewer than 10 hits in a season. Ross, (sighs) Moshido, Ross Moshido, Mosquito, Ross, M-O-S-C-H, 
I-T-T-O, a last name I have never seen before in my entire life. In 1965, he played for the New York Yankees. That is a Yankees team that that year went 77-85. I didn't know the Yankees ever had bad years back then. But anyway, that was a Yankees team that did have players such as Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, other ones, and Ross Moschito. Moschito. I'm going to go with uh, Moschito. Moshito, Rosaire. His Perhaps. first name is Rosaire. Rosaire Allen Moshito. So huh. hold on. Rosaire. <laughs> has there been any other? Okay, so he's the only Rosaire in Major League history, and perhaps unsurprisingly, the only Moshito Mosquito. <laughs> Also in Major League history, I want to stop saying that name. I feel like it's going to give us an explicit label for this podcast. In 1965, Mosquito, maybe Mosquito, 1965, he played in 96 games with the Yankees and finished with five hits. He batted just 28 times. Here's where this gets interesting. In the minors, his first year in the minors playing in Johnson City, he was 19, hit 20 home runs. He had a 981 OPS. No idea what the league average was back then, but I bet it wasn't 981. He showed a little bit of promise, hit a little bit, and he was in the major leagues in 1965, the year that I just mentioned. And in 1965, played all those games, didn't hit. I'm just going to let you know, Mosquito, Mosquito, Ross, (laughs) Ross played again in 1967. He played 14 games, had one hit. In his major league career, spanning, I guess, two seasons, Ross played in 110 games. He had six hits. Uh, one was a home run. And he never started a single game. He only ever <laughs> appeared as a defensive replacement. That is the only thing that Ross ever did. He played left, center, and right fields. Uh, he committed only three errors. I have no idea if he was any good. But according to the uh, according to the fielding numbers that do exist, no, he was not. But in any case, that was a... Uh, that was his job, yeah. and so he uh, he played his first game and on April fifteenth, and he did nothing. And then he did he did have his first plate appearance on April eighteenth of nineteen sixty five. And when he did that, he came in in relief of Mickey Mantle, which is a uh, pretty good thing to be able to do. Oh, he actually mm-hmm. pinch ran for Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle and walked in the top of the seventh, and then Ross came in to pinch run. He advanced to second on the lineout. Then there was a walk. Then he there was a triple. So the first time he ever got the bat. He did score a run, but Ole Ross, who is currently 72 years old and alive and uh, in, I don't know, maybe he's still in Fresno. He went to school in Fresno. I never know where these people could settle, but he uh, never started. I have some news about Ross. So he, according to his Wikipedia page, which he does have, oddly (laughs) enough, he is uh, one of only seven players to have more career game appearances than plate appearances. This uh, is a possibly outdated fun fact. It seems to cite a decade-old list, but he is uh, obviously unusual in that respect. Now, I think he is either the player or one of the players who had the nickname Mickey's Legs, Mm. which I believe came up once, maybe, or we at least got an email about it when we were talking Mm -hmm. about player nicknames that had other players' names in them. So because he was a a caddy for Mickey Mantle, he was uh, Mickey's legs. And in fact, I have found on a sports memorabilia site here a signed baseball, signed by Russ, (laughs) uh, which he has autographed and below written Mickey's legs in uh, quotation marks, but with an apostrophe between the uh, G 
G and the S on the end there. Don't need an apostrophe there, Russ. Oh, no. But uh, <laughs> I don't know if that makes it more or less valuable. So that's something to know about him. Another thing I uh, I know about him now is that I searched to see if he had a, a Twitter account, which seemed unlikely, but I have found a, a Twitter account for Russ Mashito. Really? At Mickey's Legs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether this is actually him or not, obviously, but the uh, profile, hmm. the uh, bio here, hashtag Trump, hashtag MAGA, hashtag military, hashtag men in blue, hashtag liberal destroyer, hashtag no fake news MSM, hashtag drain the swamp. <laughs> I hope this isn't Russ. <laughs> oh, no, Russ. <laughs> joined October 2017. So... uh if this is Russ, he has uh, just joined Twitter and he has some political opinions to share. What are the <laughs> god dang odds that he would show up on Twitter and in October yeah. of last year? Right. Uh, I can I, I can say that he did. <laughs> that we cold call Russ, but now I'm feeling a little less <laughs> enthusiastic about that idea. Yeah, you could look. It would it would maybe be a memorable podcast. I don't know. Uh, fun fact about Ross Moat. I don't care how to pronounce his last name anymore. He he pinch ran forty times in his major league career, and he ended up with zero stolen bases and zero caught stealing bases, and of course zero triples. No evidence that he was actually fast. I don't know what his deal was, but he uh, he did go into run when Mickey Mantle didn't want to anymore. And yeah. as I uh, search his name, I can tell you that I uh, found another article from the Rockland County Times. That's Rockland's official newspaper since 1888. Mm -hmm. It's published <laughs> weekly. There's a picture caption. Picture it does not upload. Former Yankee outfielder and Rockland resident Ross M. gives Anne Blandastrati of Palm City, Florida, some advice on her golf stroke. Hmm. That's uh, down here where the flowers bloom in the spring. Tra-la-la. That's the lead of this story. <laughs> you won't find erstwhile New York Yankees outfielder Ross Machido at Tradition Field following the Mets, nor in nearby Jupiter at Roger Dean Stadium checking in on the Florida Marlins or the St. Louis Cardinals. Neither will you find Machido, who spent 20-plus years in Garnerville running a security business up the road in Vieira at Space Coast Stadium, wondering how the Washington Nationals are progressing. Tell me, Mark Matura, where will you find Ross Machido? Rather, you can use usually find the tall, still trim, still athletic, personable 68-year-old from Fresno, California, where he was a teammate of the Hall of Fame pitcher Thomas Seaver at Fresno City College at his busy, updated St. Lucie golf range. I have lost interest. <laughs> All right. Well, this has uh, taken us to some strange places, as stat blasts often do. Did, did you have a, a third stat blast that you wanted to do quickly? I did. Also, okay. now I can tell you that uh, Machido's baseball career ended following an Achilles tendon injury. I was with the Yankees in Fort Lauderdale in 1968 when I popped an Achilles and was never the same after that, recalls Machido, who, I will remind you, never stole a base in the major leagues. <laughs> he says, I could, quote, fly, parentheses run, thanks Mark, and had a cannon for an arm, but once I was injured, I hurt my arm by trying to compensate. What on earth happened? <laughs> I mean, you can't be Mickey's legs if your own legs are non-functional. You'd need like a... And Mickey's legs, legs, you'd need another player to back him up, which would be probably an inefficient use of roster space. He popped his Achilles, which hurt his game, even though he never stole a base, and then he hurt his arm, compensating for his hurt Achilles, which I... <laughs> Look, I know that there is such thing. Okay, so I'm just going to do the other stat blast. Okay, so <laughs> okay. Uh, this is just really quick, so uh, maybe 30 seconds, but I wrote about Colin Moran just yesterday and how Moran 
uh, started to hit a lot more fly balls than he had before. So that's uh, that's nothing too unusual. We've talked about these adjustments a million times. So between the last two years, Logan Morrison, for example, uh, pretty well known for hitting a lot more fly balls, he dropped his ground ball rate by 11 percentage points. That's uh, that's big. Yonder Alonso, another guy who did the same thing, he dropped his ground ball rate by 10 percentage points. Jed Lowry and Colin Moran tied, having dropped their ground ball rates by 13 percentage points. That's enormous. That's why Moran was able to tap into his power, and it is why Jed Lowry had a strong offensive season. But while those players had large decreases in ground ball rate, they are not the players in professional baseball who had the largest drops in ground ball rate. The Mm. player in professional baseball who between 2016 and 2017 dropped his ground ball rate the most was one Antonio Nunez. Antonio Nunez being a player, maybe not coincidentally, in the Astros system. He is a second baseman, it looks like, and in 2016, he had an above-average WRC+. Playing between high A and double A, and that was when he was hitting a bunch of balls on the ground. In 2016, uh, this is Nunez's third professional season. He hit zero home runs. In 2015, also as a ground ball hitter, he hit zero home runs. In 2014, he hit zero home runs. Antonio Nunez had never hit a home run as a professional, and in 2017, he dropped his ground ball rate by 18 percentage points. He hit. Mm-hmm ground balls just 39% of the time playing for the double-A affiliate of the Houston Astros, and he's like 270. He had his first two career home runs, and he was absolutely terrible. So Antonio Nunez, I don't know what the deal was, but as a ground ball hitter in 2016 between levels, he slugged 298. He had a 672 OPS. This past season, he had a 586 OPS, and he was bad. Uh, He also stopped running quite so well. So I don't know what happened with Antonio Nunez. He's not a quality prospect, so he's not the kind of guy who I could get any information on while Googling. But clearly, something happened with Antonio Nunez. I don't know why. He's listed here as 5'9", 165. So maybe the Astros thought Jose Altuve could do it. That means (laughs) any little dude could do it. And you know what? Mm -hmm. Maybe if Nunez played at the major league level, those balls would carry over the fence. But in AA Corpus Christi, they most certainly did did not. So big change. Antonio Nunez, not any better for it. All right. That was a lengthy stat blast segment, (laughs) three stat blasts. So (laughs) this has already been a a long episode. Let's see if we can cram a, a couple more in here. Adam, Patreon supporter, says in the Japanese game show, where Bonds, Giambi, and Bernie Williams had to hit in a bunch of weird circumstances. One of the challenges had a left-handed pitcher and right-handed pitcher both on the mound, both winding up, but only one actually throwing the ball. Even though they were throwing about 50 miles per hour, it was a bit of a challenge to the hitters. How good would a pair of pitchers doing this need to be to perform at an average MLB level? What ERA would you project for a Kershaw-Kluber combo? (laughs) So you have two guys on the mound. How bad can they be individually? in order to be major leaguers in combination, essentially. So the the deception aspect here, the element of surprise, not knowing which of these guys is going to throw the pitch, how much does that help? How, how bad can you be and get away with that? Uh, that's really hard to answer. Okay, so just, just to walk this back, they're throwing one ball, one ball between the two yes, of them? Yes, only one okay. of them is actually pitching. Only one of them, okay. But you don't okay. know which one. That, that answers... 
a lot of questions that I did have. I probably should <laughs> okay. have paid closer attention. Okay, because right, if it's two, get out of town. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so one of them, one of them is throwing. They can, they're gonna be standing probably on opposite ends of the rubber. You don't know mm -hmm. who to focus on. Oh my gosh. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that that advantage is worth mm, twenty runs. 20 runs over the course of a full season as a starting pitcher. I wonder, I'm going to guess that the pitcher who is pitching is going to have some sort of tell. I can't imagine that if you don't have a baseball in your hand that, I mean, mm. as the ball comes out of the glove, it should be apparent to the hitter. Right. You can True. see a white thing. So you, the timing won't be exactly, maybe 20 runs is too aggressive. The timing what won't be exactly the same. they can both hold a ball, oh, but only one no. of them throws it? Well, uh, the... <laughs> What, those players are going to get hurt. I think that <laughs> yes. it's, it's bad to throw a ball without throwing it. So you're, yeah, uh, I mean the batter is going to get hurt <laughs> probably just <laughs> from not being able to react in time. But uh, aside from that, well, I so mean, the, it, there's an article on the Athletic just the other day about the Cubs presentation to Shohei Otani, and it, they were talking about how they had a virtual reality system where you could mm. put on these goggles or something, and then you could pretend like you're looking in at any pitcher who exists. Uh -huh. So I think the yeah. example given was Clayton Kershaw. And it would be interesting to then put hitters in a virtual reality situation where they're seeing two pitchers on the yeah. mound, and, uh, <laughs> and they don't know who the ball's going to come from. But Although then you might cause Chris Bryant to have nightmares and ruin his career. This would be <laughs> yeah. a, an enormous advantage, I think. Yeah, would be, huge. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just so much of it is being able to follow the ball out of the hand and, I mean, there's so little time between the ball being released and the point at which it's just too late to be able to adjust to it. Now, the question is asking how bad can you be and get away with it? So we're not mm -hmm. talking about like, I mean, if... The question asked if you take like Kershaw and Kluber and they can do this together. I mean, does a run score? Like, <laughs> I, I guess a run, like, you know, just kind of taking swings almost at random. You'll eventually hit a home run or something just because. But like, you know, I, I mean, the stats would be otherworldly, obviously. But like, you know, if you if you're us or like if you throw like because at what point does your lack of stuff just you know does that essentially make up for from the batter's perspective for the inability to see it and anticipate it out of the hand i'm going to say that it would be enough that any pitcher in affiliated professional baseball could be in the majors uh -huh. that's going to be my my barrier okay that sounds reasonable i think so you know you're not just taking like guy off the street soft tossing but no no you, know, you and i could like not us. do this yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, you but, and I could not like tag team a major league hitter. I wish that I didn't say that. <laughs> you and I you and I could not be on the mound cuz you're you're right-handed, correct? Uh-huh. I don't know if you have to be opposite-handedness is to do this yeah, and probably this make it easier. There's not that much room on the mound and on the rubber, but that's yeah. another problem. The right. pitcher could feel crowded and maybe make himself worse. Yeah, true. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a pretty good rule of thumb. If you're already a professional pitcher in affiliated ball, then you could be a big leaguer under this. I think that's about right. Okay, I'll go with that. It's simple. You think the Stompers could beat the Tigers if the <laughs> Stompers got to do this, and you don't lose another guy on defense? I mean, I think so, because like, the Stompers could get guys who throw 90, you know, like not a, a great 90, but they could collect a bunch of 90 throwers with poor control if they wanted to and if you can throw that hard i think you're throwing hard enough that there's still not enough time to adjust to this i mean i don't know if hitters would just like the way that hitters now sit fastball sometimes like would you just sit 
right-handed or something like (laughs) just assume that uh, you know just pick one essentially and at least you'll be good to the half of the time that you're right if it's random maybe but i mean that might be better than just sort of dividing your attention like it might just be literally impossible to hit the ball if the guy's good enough if you're not picking up the ball from the first moment so you might just have to pick one and and like be half as good as you currently are i guess so uh that might be one strategy but yeah i think stompers could be big leaguers if you took the hard throwing stompers and and put them together on the mound i think so yeah i think the players would stop crying the plate yeah probably all right Clay says, how would baseball be different if the sport operated on a schedule similar to the Olympics? Players would train and play exhibition games with their team during the three off years, but every fourth year was the season that actually mattered. Assume the other structures are similar, the draft is still held every spring, players can sign contracts and be traded, etc. What would GMs do differently to ensure their team was prepared to win the gold? So I guess, I mean, this would completely destabilize baseball Uh, obviously like the revenue wouldn't be there you wouldn't be able to attract the talent that you do now the player pool would be a lot shallower because unless every sport is doing this you just you wouldn't get guys going into baseball if they're just playing exhibition games you know I, i mean i guess what is the difference ultimately between an exhibition game if exhibition games are the majority of your games like does that make sense really if you're just if you're still playing other teams then how would they even be different i i don't know like a lower level of competition or something but like it would just be a less appealing career path i would assume so baseball would be worth worse and and less lucrative in every way i'm gonna guess that this would cause a shift for teams to prioritize pitching even more i think that in the exhibition years you could back off your pitchers of course you still need your pitchers to develop but you wouldn't use them as much i think you could work to keep them fresher there would be a reduced injury risk long term for pitchers just because they wouldn't have that much asked of them for the three interim years i'm gonna guess and because maybe the hitters wouldn't be facing the really good pitching quite as often their development could be a little bit slower and so maybe they don't work out quite as well so maybe this is all speculation maybe i'm wrong maybe i mean even now if you have pitchers in the minor leagues it's not like winning is the goal so in theory you should be able to back off them as well but Mm -hmm. because you wouldn't have guys having let's say major league workloads for 75 percent of the seasons then i think that it would make pitchers safer and therefore teams would like pitchers more and so we've had the conversation before about whether the cubs rebuild style or like the braves rebuild style is better and i think that this would make the braves maybe a little better those pitchers need to develop but also if they don't get hurt then that would make them better as well Mm -hmm. all right so uh we will wrap it up there i suppose and we'll be back later this week you can support the podcast on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild five listeners have already pledged their support include tom retzo andy joe camarada thomas shivoni and Stephen rush thanks to all of you you can join our facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on itunes thanks to dylan higgins for his editing assistance help replenish our mailbag keep your questions and comments coming for me and jeff via email at podcast at fangrass.com or via the patreon messaging system we will talk to you soon but when we are dead